Amen. Isn't it great to be a friend of God? If I'm going to be a friend of somebody, I like you, but I'd rather be a friend of God. But fortunately, I get to be a friend of God and a friend of you. And that is outstanding. We're going to continue our series this morning, series that we call Collide. And if you're a guest, let me explain what we're talking about colliding. We're talking about two opposing worldviews. One worldview is that God is God and that God's Word is His divinely inspired, inerrant Word and that it is our guidebook for all of life and everything that we do and it is our guidebook for preparation for eternity. And so we are going to embrace that worldview in every area and compartment of our life. The other worldview would tell you that everything I just said is false. There is no God. There is no absolute truth. There is no eternal accountability. And therefore, live life however you want to live it. No one has the right to tell you that the way you want to live your life is better or different or accurate or good or righteous. You live your life experience. You decide for yourself how you want to live. And no one has any claim in this life, and there is no life to come, so you just live how you want to live. Now, obviously, those two worldviews are so far apart that they can't both be right. And so what we're doing in this series is we are taking on some of the areas of life that we feel that these two cultures, or these two worldviews, have, have collided. And we're giving everyone an opportunity to know what God says, understand where contemporary culture is, and then you make a decision on where you want to go, what you want to do with your life, who you want to follow. Now, last week, we started talking about how culture collides with singleness. We've talked about how culture collides with marriage. Next week, we're going to talk about how culture collides with family. We're talking about how culture collides with singleness. And I really feel that, that possibly single people today, whether they've never been married, whether they're teenagers or college uh, folks or, or young professional adults, or, or whether they're, they're in their latter years, I, I think possibly they have the greatest challenge with this cultural collide. And so we've been trying to highlight some of these ideas. Now, last week, uh, we decided that, uh, this isn't the right set of slides, guys, but uh, last week we decided that we're kind of like in the pickle principle. The pickle principle is this, that in order to make a pickle, you take a cucumber and you soak it in brine and spices and different things. And after a while, those... Uh, spices and that brine soaks into the cucumber and what happens a pickle is produced Wayne Ward who's a Christian counselor says that we're a lot like pickles matter of fact he would claim that all of us are pickles we are daily sitting in a solution of brine of a sex saturated totally permissible culture and that that soaking process is impacting the way that we think, the way that we act. He goes on to say that that is even true in the lives of Christians. That increasingly, Christians, because they've been sitting in the brine of postmodernism culture all week, are taking on the same characteristics as those who are unbelievers. 
And being around this culture and being bombarded by this culture is causing us to also think differently and make different choices. It's causing us to draw further and further away from that godly worldview and causing us more and more to embrace and follow and to be subdued by the contemporary world of view. Now, last week we took on some pickle principles. Pickle principle number one is that it's your life, live it any way you want. Now, we debunked that. In fact, the Bible says for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ and want to follow God's will view, that we're not our own. We're bought with a price. The price was Jesus Christ dying on the cross. Then we also looked at the modern view of singleness is that if you're a single, you're a loser. You know, why can't you get anybody? How how come you lost who you had? And after the services, I was bombarded by single people. And I said, that's exactly how we feel. That's exactly how our family makes us feel. That's exactly how society makes us feel. And if we're not married, if we're not attached to somebody, then, then they look at us as abnormal, no matter what age group it was. Then we looked at this whole idea of success is paramount. The two most prized values of especially the millennial generation, Generation Y, is instant fame and instant fortune. And we discovered last week that it doesn't matter whether the fame is positive or negative fame or whether the fortune is by, by honorable means or dishonorable means. You just got to get it. You got to make your mark. Now, I don't have time to repeat and, and go over everything that we talked about last week, so I invite you to, to either get a CD at the resource table after church or go online to our website and you can listen to the message that we shared last week. But today, I want to go on and I want to cover two more pickle principles. Two more ways, especially in the lives of single people, that contemporary culture is colliding with their biblical worldview. Now, I want to say that as we get into this, there's going to be a temptation by some of you who are a little older than teenagers or college uh, folks or even young professionals to think that this isn't for you. But statistics are increasingly pointing to the fact that these particular areas are impacting all age groups, even up into senior citizens. So don't tune it out. Pickle principle number four is this. Sex is no big deal. Sex is no big deal. Contemporary society says that sex is the ultimate pleasure in life, and therefore everyone has the right to enjoy it, even teenagers. And increasingly, this permissive attitude is seeping down to preteens. It's no big deal. It's the ultimate pleasure in life. And so everybody has the right to experience it. Now, this is nothing new, by the way. The Apostle Paul was dealing with the same thing when he wrote a letter to the church at Corinth. And they were steeped in culture of their day. And they were going away from a biblical worldview, and they were pursuing a secular worldview of their time. And sexuality was prominent in their church it was it was rampant in the church and so he says in first corinthians six thirteen, food for the stomach stomach for the food in other words that was their response to their sexuality their immorality they're saying it's no big deal you know it's, it's like food for the stomach stomachs for food no big deal but paul reminds them to god it's a big deal it's a huge deal and he goes on to say the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the lord <clears throat> and the lord for the body now, McKinsey, uh, Renee McKinsey, 
who is a Christian author, young Christian author and a blogger, very adeptly points out where all this has gone in our day. She says this, You're familiar, no doubt, with the statistics on Christian sexuality. We don't stand out as very different in our sexual behavior. That's what the statistics are showing, by the way. That in the lives of those who are Christians or claim to be Christians, their attitude and their behavior sexually is really not much different than anybody else. She goes on to say, which means our basic beliefs and ideas about sex must not be that different either. What do we see? We see the pickle principle in effect, don't we? We, we see that we're sitting in the, the, the brime of this culture, and it's wearing off. We're soaking it in, and it's changing the way we act. And this is one of the areas of our life. It's changing us dramatic, dramatically. So what does the secular culture say about sex? Why do they say it's no big deal? If we can understand that, then maybe we can do some checks and balances. And that's what this is all about. That's what this series is about. It's not to beat up anybody. It's not to condemn anybody. It's to compare the two worldviews and see which one we are really embracing. And then make a decision on which one we want to embrace and then make course corrections as needed. Secular culture says this, that sex is a basic natural biological drive. You you can really see the impact of evolution in this. We've all just evolved after, after all. We're all mistakes. We're just all cosmic happenings. And we've all kind of evolved. The animal kingdom has evolved, and, and mankind has evolved, and sexuality is just, just a drive that's in all of us, and so we should not try to suppress it, and, and we should all enjoy it. It's our right, and it's just the most natural thing in the world, so let's just enjoy that part of our experience. Some would even say it's a biological necessity. It's a biological need. I find that mostly in men. <laughs> I don't have it, I'm going to explode. Well, as one Christian psychologist, Paul Bryant, said, there's never been any historical evidence of an epidemic where males have been, had to have been hospitalized because women have not allowed themselves to be outlets for sex. Our biological needs as human beings are water, air, and food. Sex is not a biological need. And what we've done is we've reduced ourselves to the same as the animal kingdom. We're just like dogs and cats and lions and, and everybody, all, all the other animals. That's all we are as animals, and so we might as well succumb to our animal instincts. Other things, they say everyone's doing it. See, we talked about last week that, that one of the labels on single people is loser. Why can't you find anybody? How come you're not attached? Now, add it to this, that, that well, probably you're not attached because you, you're not involved in sex, and, and you're holding out, and, and so no one wants to be around you because everyone's doing it. And why should they, they, they go with you because you've got this inflated value system? Why should they hang with you when, when they can get with somebody else who's giving them and enjoying our natural biological drive? Now, here's the fact, though. Not everybody's doing it. In fact, recent statistics show that there's a dramatic change going on. For example, the Guttmacher Institute, along with the Kaiser Institute and the Heritage Institute and the Pew Foundation, they've all run studies on this, and the Guttmacher Institute uh, uncovered this about teenagers. Teens have been waiting longer to have sex than they did in recent past. In 2006-2008, some 11% of never-married females age 15 through 19 and 14% of never-married males that age had had sex before 15 compared with 19 and 21% respectfully in 1995. In other words, it's going down. Teens are getting it. If you're a teen, give yourself a hand today. Let's give our teens a hand. They're getting it today. They're understanding that what the culture's pumping into their heads isn't true. Not everybody is doing it. Now, college students are finding the same thing. 
University of Minnesota did a study where they interviewed and surveyed 10,000 students on 14 different campuses. And and here's what they found out. 77.6% of those students reported having been sexually active at some point in their life. In other words, they had had sex. Now, that certainly goes in line with the contemporary view of sex, that it's no big deal. But look what it goes on to find. The finding said that nearly four out of five, or 78.5% of the students, reported having had zero or one sexual partner within the last 12 months. In other words, although they had experienced sex, they had smartened up, they decided it wasn't what they anticipated, it didn't provide them what they want, and so they have minimized their sexual activity subsequent to that initial activity. And so even they now statistically are waiting and not engaged in that kind of activity. And so when people say everyone's doing it and when people try to intimidate you as a single saying everyone's doing it, what's wrong with you? You can know for a fact that that's not true. In fact, the trend is just the opposite. Culture says that sex is no big deal because it's a proof of love. It's a proof of love. How many guys have used that line, huh? If you love me, you will. I mean, you prove me to me your love. And if you really love me, then you'll have sex with me. That's no proof of love. How is that a proof of love? Give me what I want from you. That, is that love? Is love really, let, I, you, you give me what I want. That's not love. That's dehumanizing. That's using somebody as an object of our own self-gratification. Love is what God says. Love is saying, I'm not going to intimidate you. I'm not going to force you. I'm not even going to tempt you in that area. Because I respect who you are. And I value you as a human being. And I respect your boundaries. And I expect your, respect your beliefs. And I want you to know how much I love you by not demanding of you in that area of our relationship. It's no proof of love. I said, well, it's an experience builder. That's what culture says. The whole idea here, especially for those who have never been married, is that, well, you don't want to appear to your spouse to be a novice on the night of your honeymoon. I mean, you you don't want to be fumbling around. I mean, you want that night to be really special, and so you you need to get some experience before you get married so that when you get married and that wedding night comes, boy, everything is just going to sizzle. Even Masters and Johnson, in their studies of adult sexuality in the early 60s, and, and they were not Christians, by the way. This was not a Christian study. Even they concluded that nothing good is going to happen in bed between a husband and wife unless good things have been happening between them before they go into bed. There is no way for good sexual technique to remedy a poor relationship. In other words, the real sizzle in sex is not the technique, it's not the physical interaction, it's the emotional interaction. And for Christians, we take that a step further, it's the spiritual interaction. Go beyond that. I love what uh, Sue Bolin has to say from Probe Ministry. She says, Purity before and after marriage prevents ghosts in the bed. Comparisons are nowhere as deadly as in the intensely intimate realm of sex. 
See, get experience? No, you're not. You're not getting experience. You're building ghosts that you're going to take into the bed with you. Ghosts of insecurity. I know my partner's had a lot of other sexual partners. I wonder wonder if I'm good. I wonder if I'm pleasing. I'm wondering. Or bringing ghosts of previous sexual relationships that you've had into your relationship now with your spouse. See, Stella and I have only known each other. And so we are, therefore, the greatest lovers in the world. Absolutely. There's nothing to compare with. We have each other. And I'm glad that's all we have to compare with. Stella's fantastic. Stella thinks, I'm super stud. And she's right. Listen, don't fall into this thing that you need to develop your experience. What you are developing are ghosts that are going to haunt you and are going to haunt your relationship later on. It's an experience in builder. No, it's not. It's a compatibility tester. I've mean, I got to try the shoe on to know if it fits. Well, trust me, physically God has made it where it's going to fit. God knew what he was doing when he made us anatomically. But the greater question is, is there emotional, psychological, and spiritual compatibility? See, that's where most of this dysfunction is in sex. It's not in physical compatibility. It's in emotional compatibility. It's in psychological compatibility. It's in spiritual compatibility. All things that are cultivated, all things that are grown, all things that are honed outside of a sexual relationship. That's what gives zing. You want to know if you're compatible, get compatible in those areas. And don't let sex come into the equation because sex clouds all the rest of that. And it becomes driven by this physical pleasure rather than driven by true compatibility. God says, sex was my idea. Think about it. Who created sex? You know, we've made sex such a dirty thing sometimes, and such, such a, you know, do it in the dark thing. God made it. The Bible says God created man. Male and female, He created them. He made us anatomically different. And He gave us, as a gift, this wonderful gift of sexual union. Now, if you want to know legalistically what God says about sex in the Bible, here's what He says. Number one, do not engage with anyone outside of marriage. He says, wait till you're married. Number two, when you get married, don't engage with anyone else after you're married but your spouse. Number three, do not engage with anyone of the same sex. Number four, do not engage with a prostitute, either female or male. Next, do not engage with family members. And finally, do not engage with animals. Double. Now, if you want purely legalistic definition of what God says not to do, there you have it. But, if you only look at God's gift and His creation of sex from a legalistic aspect, you're missing the whole point. Because it's so much more than that. See, everything God created has purpose. And we see that in all creation. We see that in the cycle of life, and we see that in the way that the earth replenishes itself. And God has a purpose in sexuality, too. And he tells us what the purpose is. It's twofold. First, he says that sex is for procreation. 
It's for having babies. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 through 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. And he gave them a method to do that, and that is through sex, through sexual intercourse. Now think about it. God created the initial man from what? The dust of the ground. God created woman from what? Rib of man. Now, I happen to know that when God created the, the earth, there was plenty of dirt around. He could have just repeated what he had done initially. He could have made all kinds of men from the dirt. And then he could have taken a rib from each one of them and made a woman. He could have kept doing that and, ju- and just creating human beings left and right all day long. But he didn't do that. Instead, he developed a way of procreation that was so much more special. And that provided something for a husband and wife. That was far beyond just a physical, biological drive and need and reaction. See, God made sex not only efficient for producing babies, but pleasurable and deeply satisfying if used properly in the proper relationship. Sex is for procreation, but it's also, and more frequently, a gift for intimacy. That's what it's for. Genesis two twenty four and 25. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. See, God, before we fell into sin, God, God could have created us and put clothes on us right from the beginning. But he didn't. Why? Because it was his intent that man and woman would not have boundaries that impeded their, their intimacy, but that they would always be able to embrace and feel the warmness of each other's flesh and always have the opportunity to engage in the most special gift that God has given anyone. See, when you follow the world's philosophy that sex is no big deal, it's just a biological drive, then, then the purpose of goal of sex is just pleasure. And when that's true, then sexual partners are just objects to be used for sensual gratification. All you are is someone to help me satisfy my biological need. How cheap is that? Isn't what God has designed so much more beautiful than that? See, God gave us intimacy. And this is what makes us different from the animal kingdom. The animal kingdom engages in sex just for procreation. Now, yes, God has put an instinct and animals will go into heat, but they go into heat not for romance, they go into heat for procreation. You never see a couple dogs lighting some candles and playing some soft music. (laughs) See, only human beings have that gift. God only gave it to man. Now, because it was his creation, and because it was given as a special gift to man, then God has given the guidelines by which it can be best enjoyed, fulfilled, and satisfied. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. That's before marriage. And that's during marriage. For God, 
Even though contemporary culture says sex is no big deal, look what God says. God says that's not true. It's a huge deal. Because God says when judgment day comes, I'm going to judge the adulterers, and I'm going to judge the sexually immoral. Now, so is God some kind of a sex killjoy? I mean, he'd create this, this wonderful thing by sex and then really say, and, and, but you can only experience it with one other person. Is he really a killjoy? Well, that's how culture would look at it. That's the conclusion they would come to. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3-7, through 7, I think gives us so much of a, of a deeper understanding of what sex is all about from a biblical worldview. You know, it, it starts out in verse 3, chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians says, if God, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now, what does that mean? To be sanctified means it's God's will that you should be set apart. That you should be sacred. That, that, that God wants you not to just be a part of the mud of humanity, but God wants to set you apart as special, as sacred. And God knows that one of the things, and one of the most prevalent things in mankind's behavior that gets in the way of that is human sexuality used incorrectly, used in a non-biblical way. That's exactly what he's talking about. That you should avoid sexual immorality, it goes on to say. That each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the heathens who do not know God. He says, I've redeemed you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to set you apart as sacred. He says, don't take what I have made Pure, what I have made holy. Don't take what I've set apart as special and pollute it with a secular worldview of what sexuality is all about. And then he goes on to say, and in that matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. God puts these guidelines in place because he does not dehumanize us, but he respects who we are. And he wants us to be treated respectfully. And he doesn't want to put us in compromising situations that are going to hurt us emotionally and psychologically and sometimes even physically. And so it says, here's what I want you guys to be like, who I have set apart as sacred through the blood of Jesus Christ. I want you to be different so people see a difference in you. I don't want you acting just like them because then they see no difference and there's nothing to attract them to me. And also, I want you to behave towards each other in a way that's respectful and that doesn't cause hurt and pain. God's plan is so pure and so beautiful. Outside the safety of marriage, sex is wounding, selfish, and hurtful. But God created it to be pleasurable and intimate and even sacred. But 1 Corinthians 6.18 gives us another reason that God has set things up the way He has. It says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. And we see that being revealed and we see that being fulfilled in our society today as we embrace this secular worldview that sex is no big deal. How do we see playing out? We see runaway epidemic of STD, sexually transmitted disease. 
And by the way, do you know that one of the age groups where this is the most prevalent and growing is senior citizens, not college kids. We see it in resulting increase in infertility, the HPV virus infecting more and more women and causing them not to be able to enjoy what God specially created them to enjoy, and that is to bring life into the world. We see rising numbers of broken hearts and broken homes and rising volumes of sexual abuse and sexual addiction. And we see soaring rates of depression, especially among young people, often frequently linked to the ravages of sex being forced upon them. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 7, says this, Do not arouse or awaken love, talking about sex, until it so desires. In other words, do it God's way. Don't get out there and do it the world's way. Don't tap into that. Don't awaken it. Don't arouse in it, because it's going to lead you down to the road of pain. But follow God's way. Follow God's way. And you'll keep the ghosts out of the bed. You'll keep the hurt out of the life. Sex, no big deal. It is to God. And God intends that it be a big deal to you and me. Now, I want to cover one more point. One more pickle principle. And this one is impacting single culture on every age group level. And that's this. Cohabitation makes sense. Cohabitation makes sense. Why get married? Just live together. The latest census reveal that 30 to 40% of couples that are contemplating marriage living in America today are living outside of wedlock. They're cohabitating. And that's just the sense. That's just people who, who actually put on the census that that's what they were doing. They're probably the percentages are much higher. In fact, George Barna, in one of his recent polls, it's like a Gallup poll, for those of you who aren't familiar with George Barna, in one of his polls, he revealed that 60% of Americans believe that the best way to establish a successful marriage is to cohabitate prior to getting married. 60% of Americans say, that makes sense, that's the thing to do. Now, mind you, 98% of Americans believe in God. So, so the pickle principle is in effect, isn't it? We're, we're soaking this up. Now, here's reasons why couples decide to cohabitate rather than get married. Number one, let's test drive. Let's just see how it works. You know, the idea here is like, well, I wouldn't buy a car without test driving it first. So why would I get into a marriage, a long-term commitment, unless I test drive it first? I love what Kirby Anderson, again, from, from a Christian ministry, said about this way of thinking. He says this, The problem with such slogans is they dehumanize the other person. Look what it says. If I decide not to buy a car, the car doesn't feel rejected. He says, when you test drive a car, you don't pack your personal luggage in the trunk. He says, and rejecting a car model doesn't bring emotional baggage into the next test driving experience. The car doesn't need psychological counseling so that it can trust the next car buyer says what? Frankly, test driving a relationship is only positive if you're the driver. If you're the one imposing it. If you're the one demanding it. 
Otherwise, it brings all kinds of hurt, all kinds of psychological issues into a person's individual life. Financially beneficial. We can save more money by moving in together. This is prevalent. I run across this all the time. Uh, here I am, I'm over here, I'm struggling single by myself, and, and you're over there, you're struggling single by yourself, and we've been dating that, so it only makes sense, let's move together, we'll combine our resources, and, and we can live at a much higher level and without all the, the financial pressure that we're under individually. Really prominent among those who have either been widowed and have children, or those who have been divorced with children, and, get, and getting reacquainted in, into another relationship because it makes it financially easier. And you know what? From a purely bookkeeping standpoint, it does. I mean, obviously, you can do better with two, two incomes than you can one. But here's the problem. What actually happens is this initial idea of, of financial freedom becomes a financial ambush. It becomes a financial trap. And we run across this in our counseling as pastors all the time. Somebody got in there, that was one of the, uh, one of the, one of the, the reasons that they got into a cohabitation relationship with somebody, but here's what happens. Over time, it's not freedom anymore, it's a trap. I can't get out of the relationship now because I've become dependent on the other person's income. I can't make it on my own because I've adjusted my lifestyle now to two incomes rather than one. And even though I know and I've now realized that we are not compatible, and even though now I'm in a relationship that maybe is even abusive, I gotta, I, there's no place I can go because I'm dependent financially. Convenience linked a lot to financial. You know, <clears throat> we're together all the time anyhow. I mean, it just doesn't make sense that every night at 2 in the morning I've got to leave and go and drive over to my house. Let's just make it convenient. Here again, especially in, in, in cohabitating couples who have children, and 40% of those who cohabitate statistically have children in the home from one, one or the other, or they had them together while cohabitating. And so you know, we can each help with the kids, and it's not all on me. And, but it's the same trap as the financial trap. What happens is you become so dependent on the presence of the other person and the additional assistance that they give that you're trapped in the relationship. And even if you discover you can't, you want out, and it's a bad relationship, it's a bad thing for you, it's a bad thing for your children, you can't get out. It's an ambush. Well, <clears throat> sexual freedom we already talked about, so we're not going to go there. Some of the real reasons though people get into these relationships is insecurity. I'm afraid to lose you. And so even though I really, my heart, I'm a believer, and boy, this whole idea of what we're about to do is just giving me all kinds of spiritual trauma right now. But, but I, I, if I don't do it, I'm going to lose you, and I just can't stand I can't even think about life without you. So. Or another version of the same thing is escape. Living with you will make me happier than I am now. Now I'm, I'm out there by myself and I'm struggling with these kids all by myself. Or I, I'm living with my parents and my parents are driving me crazy. And, and, and I, I've got to get out, I've got to get out, I've got to escape, I've got to escape. And so I'll, I'll just move in with you and it'll make my life happier. Except the same things that we've been talking about manifest themselves over and over and over again. Another one is rationalization. Hey, we're getting married anyhow. You're wearing a, you know, I gave you an engagement ring, the wedding date set, we might as well just move in now, why wait for the wedding? Except there's a whole lot of things that can happen before you actually get married in that engagement. The engagement period 
is different than the wedding. And it's different so that you have time to explore and get into pre-marriage counseling so that you are emotionally and spiritually and psychologically compatible. And a lot can happen before that wedding date. Dr. Willard Harvey, who is a uh, founder of Marriage Builders, a wonderful Christian organization that, that supports marriage and helps people who are in marriage crisis, says this, the problem is that marriage changes everything. If couples that live together think that after marriage everything will be the same, they don't understand what marriage does to a couple, both positively and negatively. He goes on to say, In my experience and in reports I've read, the chances of divorce after living together are huge. If living together were a test of marital compatibility, the statistics should show the opposite results. Couples living together should have stronger marriages. But they don't. They have weaker marriages. And I will tell you, from all the statistical information that I've researched in preparation for this series, I have found this to be accurate. In basic, here's how it goes. 100 couples who cohabitate. 40 will break up and never get married. Of 100, 40 couples will, will break up. Now, remember, that breakup is going to bring all kinds of emotional and psychological and spiritual and possibly sexual scarring into both partners as they go on from that relationship. Of the 60 who marry, 45 will get divorced. Because marriage is nothing like cohabitating. Cohabitating is really nothing like marriage. That leaves 15 of 100 lasting marriages. That means that the statistical odds against a lifelong relationship for couples who start it by cohabitating is 85% less likely. 85%. You wouldn't take those odds in any other endeavor of life. Kevin, give me a $100 bill. There's an 85% chance I'll repay you. not going to happen. I need better odds than that. And yet we do this all the time. Dr. Harley continues, what you don't seem to realize is that you will never know what married life is unless you're married. Right now, you're testing each other to see if you're compatible. If either of you slips up, the test is over and you're out the door. Marriage doesn't work that way. Slip-ups don't end marriage. If they did, any of us who have been married any length of time at all would have been long out of there. Because we all slip up all the time. Here's the difference, and I love how he concludes this thought. A newly married couple makes a deliberate effort to accommodate each other because they know their relationship will be for life. Look what he says. They want to build compatibility, not test compatibility. And there's a huge difference between those two attitudes. We want to build it. We know we don't naturally have it. We know we're going to have to work through it. We know it's going to take us a lifetime because we're always going to be changing. But we will always change with our life circumstances because we have made a commitment to each other. The other way is, let's test it and see if it works out. Well, it doesn't work out. Now, here's where the breakdowns happen. Here's where this line of thinking that that it makes sense. Here's where it breaks down. That couples who cohabitate, they avoid and they duck the tough issues. And there's always tough issues in any relationship. And because it's a test drive now, there is no long-term covenant. There's no long-term commitment here. It's a test drive. So things that should be addressed 
tend not to be addressed because of fear of pushing one or other of the partners out of the test drive experience. And now, financially, I can't do that. And now, convenience-wise, I can't do that. And there's all kinds of reasons now that that becomes very difficult for me to do. Also, there's a lot of repressed anger. Can't, I, 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 you know, I'm just seething inside. No, really, I have grown not to like you. But I can't share that. Why, again? Because I can't afford for you to walk on me. Avoid criticisms of each other's annoying behaviors. Now, that's one of the first thing married couples have to deal with. We get married and find out that Prince Charming's really a frog. Huh, ladies, huh? He picks his nose, burps at the table, throws his underwear in a ball in a corner. And she, she's no better. She squeezes the toothpaste tube from the middle. What kind of idiot does that? And she put the toilet paper under instead of over the roll. And that laugh that was just so beautiful before we got married now becomes, oh my goodness. See, but in, in a test drive relationship, we're afraid. We're not being honest. We're not being open. There is some degree, and even in couples who will say, that's not true of us. Yes, there is. There is some degree. There is some area you will not go beyond. Suffer strained relationships with parents, close family members, and treasured friends. Oftentimes you get in these relationships, and people who disagree with that kind of thing, parents very often, or some close friends, especially you know, close friends who are Christian friends, and are going, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Causes strained relationships. But especially in the lives of believers, what does it do? They struggle with this constant undercurrent of guilt. Because why? Because the Holy Spirit lives in us. And whether, whenever we're doing anything contrary to what God is guiding us to do, and, and whether cohabitation is one thing, it can be lots of things, but what happens? That Holy Spirit just starts being grieved. And it produces guilt in us. Cohabitating, it sounds good. It sounds logical. It seems to make sense. But the Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the ends are the ways of death. And it is the death of many relationships. And especially for those of us who are believers... We're just called to a different experience. 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9 says, Now to the unmarried and widows I say, it's good, for you not to, or it's good for you to stay unmarried as I am. We talked about that last week. Singleness isn't losers. It's an opportunity to give yourself totally to the kingdom of God. But he goes on to say, But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. If you're in a relationship with somebody and, and there's a strong sexual drive or there's a strong compatibility drive or there's a strong loneliness drive and it's really overcoming everything and impeding your, your call and your work for the Lord anyhow, then go ahead and get married. It's not a sin to get married. You're not sinning to do that. Ephesians chapter 5, 8-12 reminds us though that as believers we have a new purpose and calling in life. It says, For you were once darkness, but... 
now you are light in, in the Lord. See, now you're light because Jesus Christ is your Savior, and you've invited Him, and you've received that gift of forgiveness. You're not darkness anymore. Now you're light. God has changed everything about you. goes on to say, live as children of light and find out what pleases the Lord. That's what we're doing in this series. See, we're finding out what pleases the Lord. We're not here to beat up on anybody. We're not here to make you feel bad. We're here to say, this is what God says. This is what the world says. What's your decision going to be? And you have, you have the civil right, and you have the spiritual right to make whatever decision you want to make. We're just trying to show you both spectrums. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Finally, he says this in 1 Thessalonians 5.22. The Bible says, avoid every kind of evil. In the King James, I really like how the King James translates. It says, abstain from all appearances of evil. See, when we follow the world's view of sexuality, then in the world's eyes, we're no different than they are. When we embrace the world's understanding of cohabitation, then there's no distinction. We're we're just like they are. But God has called us not to be like the world. In fact, he says, come ye out from among the world and be separate. Because we have a high calling. And that calling is to be light in a world of darkness. So that people have an opportunity... To make a decision, an informed decision. So I know, what, you know, okay, if I want to go this way, okay. If I want to go that way, okay. It's your decision. But we're here to help people see a better way. Because we believe that God has revealed truth to us. And we know that that truth will lead us safely through this life and will prepare us for the life to come. Singles, it's a tough world that you live in. I understand that. There's a lot of pull on you. Know that we who are married as your brothers and sisters of Christ and even your single counterparts, we love you and we're praying for you and we want you to win. We really do. All of us continue to fight this battle as we collide with culture. That's about our heads. All of us have done it wrong at times in our life. None of us can stand up here today and say that I followed God's way 100% of the time all my life. None of us can say that. And so the fact that maybe today these points especially impacted you, understand that we don't look down on you. We just want to present an opportunity for you to reevaluate where you're at and what, 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 what direction you want to go. And understand also that God loves you. And so God has drawn you here some way, somehow, to hear this message today so that you can evaluate the diametrically opposed worldviews in these subjects that we talked about today. And to give you an opportunity to make a course correction where needed and where desired. So the ball's in your court now. Father, I pray for these wonderful, wonderful single men and women here today that you love dearly, whose names you know intimately, whose lives are an open book before you. 
And God, I pray for them and I pray for their married counterparts. Father, that together we may take this opportunity of this series to reevaluate what voices we're listening to. To, to really see how much of the brine of this sex-saturated culture we live in has been absorbed by us and how it is impacting the way we think and the way we live. God, we're here because we do love you. And we're here because we know that your word is true. God, help us not to get sucked away from it, but help us to face you and face the word and let ourselves be saturated in your word and saturated in your praise and saturated in Christian fellowship so that we can withstand the strong temptation that the contemporary culture puts in our lives every day. Lord, I pray especially for any man or woman here today who has never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's where it all starts. We don't stand a chance against culture. We don't stand a chance of pleasing you. We don't stand a chance of entering eternity except through Jesus Christ. And so God, if there's a man or a woman here today who has never trusted you, I pray right now they'll do that. That they'll humble themselves and in faith pray to you, God, I confess my need for your forgiveness. And I confess my sincere desire for your forgiveness. God, forgive me of my sins. God, right now, I believe what you have said about your son Jesus. That he was sent here to die on the cross for sin. And I believe because he was sinless, he was the only worthy sacrifice to die on a cross. And because Jesus was the only one worthy and willing to die on the cross... I understand now. That's why you have given him alone the authority to forgive sin. And so, Jesus, I ask you to forgive my sin. Jesus, today, as best as I understand it, I call upon the name of the Son of God. I call upon the name of Jesus as my eternal Savior. Be my Savior today. Father, protect us with your presence and your love. Help us to wake up and help us to live for you so that we're ready for your return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Next week we're going to talk about how culture collides with family. Real important message. Hope you'll come back and bring a lot of family guests with you. Again, going to provide just some some eye-opening things so we can evaluate where we're at. And that's what this is all about. In a moment, you're going to leave. Let me ask you to give your offerings. Give sacrificially. Also, those of you can stay help with the chairs, do that. But before we do that, I've got to talk to you about one thing. And I know we're going a little long today, but please indulge me for just a moment. If you're a guest, I'm going to invite you. Thank you for being here today. And if you would like at this time, you're welcome to get a head start and head out the door. And thank you for being here, and I hope you'll come back next week for the next session. But I want to talk to the family here a little bit.